It's great to hear the, the buzz of conversation. Um, encourage you, if you've been around for a while, especially after the service, look for new people to greet. Uh, use this as an opportunity to connect with people, encourage one another. Um, it's just a great thing to do together. And uh, I just, uh, so I, I get to sit up front for the second service. Uh, first service is in the back with my three kiddos. It's sweet being up front so you can hear all the voices from the back. And it was just so sweet to hear us as a family singing and giving praise to our God who's worthy of it. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael McKittrick, and I'm a church plant resident here at The Vine. And I just want to give a quick one-minute update before I jump into our sermon this morning on where we stand with our our mission to to neighbors. So The Vine, we want to see disciples made and churches planted amongst neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. So we've got partnerships overseas in Ecuador and in North Africa, but also we want to see more uh, gospel-preaching uh, missional-driven churches kind of dot all around our local uh, Dane County in Madison. And so my wife and I came here about a year and a half ago, and we loved that vision of seeing more churches planted locally by the vine. But we also uh, loved the idea of working in a team, and uh, that the vine's got a big emphasis on that, which is really sweet. So where things stand is we're really aiming to plant in north and east Madison. That's kind of the area we're looking to plant in eventually. But also, um, just a cool update is in the last couple of weeks, I've begun conversations with a good friend of mine about joining me as a co-pastor. And so we're starting to have those conversations to see if God might be drawing us together to, to, do, to do this work. So I want to thank you for your prayers in the process so far. I'd ask you to continue praying for God to provide discernment as to whether we're, we're a fit to kind of do this work. Also ask you to be praying uh, for those who might want to join the core group. Be praying also for God to prepare the hearts of unbelievers in North and East Madison to hear the gospel and have their lives transformed kind of through this church plant. So it's a journey. I'm really excited about it. Grateful for the support of the vine. I'm just very excited uh, about that journey. Now, shifting gears to Exodus, we're also talking about another journey here. And it's a journey of redeemed people through a wilderness. And we're in kind of the third story in a row now of God's people grumbling and complaining. That even after all they've seen God do, they're so quick to grumble and complain. And I think too often we look at them and we want to kind of say like, man, those Israelites, they cannot get their act together. I mean, if only we would have been the wilderness generation, we would have shown them how to do it, right? And yet, I think actually their journey is so often a mirror of our own lives. I was thinking about this recently. I teach a middle school Bible at Karis Classical Academy. And I was chatting with some fifth graders, and we were talking about Israel. And the one student said, man, those Israelites, they are so ridiculous. Like, they know the right thing to do, and they just don't do it. How come? And I said, well, uh, do you know that it's better to obey God than to not obey him? Yeah, absolutely. Do you know that it's better to obey your parents as God told you to than to not obey them? Absolutely. Do you always perfectly obey your parents? Well, no. How ridiculous. <laughs> and just like their eyes got like super huge and, and then the light bulb clicked. And they're like, oh, right, we're like the Israelites. And we had this awesome discussion about how God shows grace to grumbling, unfaithful people over and over and over again. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Exodus 17. We're going to see God show his grace to grumblers. And I think what God wants for us is he wants to invite us to move from grumbling and anxiety and fear to trust as we see his gracious provision. 
We want to move from fear and anxiety to trust as we see his gracious provision. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into Exodus 17 together. Father, we come this morning, and I pray that you would help us to sense our need, that whether we come in already feeling it or not, that we would know that we are needy people, and you would cause us to lean in to what you have for us this morning. Father, help me to sense my own neediness in in speaking that it would only be your words and your power that's at work so that all of us could grow in faith as we see you more clearly this morning. pray this in your name. Amen. Let me read Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So this morning we're going to look at the problem presented in this passage before looking at the solution and then briefly applying it. So what's the problem? Well, according to the people, there's a a big problem. And and really this is a problem they've seen already in two other stories, right? They, They showed up in the wilderness and they found water, but it was bitter. Couldn't drink it, and, and God made it sweet. And then they, then they were out of food, and God provided. And now they come, verse 1, to this area of Rephidim, but there's no water for the people to drink. Now, this is a real problem. They're not complaining here just about a want. They're complaining about a need. And I think we need to see that, otherwise we're going to be too harsh on them. Like, water's a real need. You actually can't go without it for too long, right? They're in the wilderness, and there is no water. There's a real need for these people. I think it's good for us to remember that when there are real needs, we can cry out to God for help. And when we see others in real need, it's good for us to have compassion on them as they are crying out for help. But the thing is, the people of Israel are not crying out for help in this passage. No, look at verse 2 and 3. It says that the people quarreled with Moses... Give us water to drink. And in verse 3 it says, The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The picture here is not of a child waking up in the middle of the night saying, Mom, Dad, I'm thirsty. Can you get me a, a cup of water? It's not the picture here. The picture is of a kid realizing they're thirsty And throwing this royal tantrum in the kitchen like, I want water. Why is there no water? I can't believe you don't give me any water. And they throw themselves on the floor and they're pounding the floor and kicking their feet. 
If you've ever seen little kids throw tantrums, you've got this picture in your brain, right? And it's, this, is, this is what they're doing. They're grumbling. They're, they're, and they're not just that, but verse 3, they say, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? They're not just grumbling. They're accusing Moses as God's chosen leader, and implicitly God was seeking to do them evil. It's not just crying out. It's not grumbling. This is accusing of evil motives. That's what they're doing here in their need. I mean, this this got intense. And to the fact that Moses in verse 4 says, the people are ready to stone me, God. They're ready to kill me. That got elevated pretty quickly. How did we get there? I mean, like just two chapters ago, they're praising God, the song of Moses worship. Two chapters later, they're ready to kill Moses because there's no water. That got crazy pretty quickly. Why? How did it escalate? Well, I think we actually need to look at the end of verse 7 for the, the author's final clue to us. The people tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, their problem wasn't that they thought that there was no water. The problem is what the lack of water signified. The lack of water made them wonder, is God actually among us? Is God here? Where is God? Because the lack of blessing signified to them that his presence was missing as well. They'd confused his blessing as they defined it with his presence. So when there was no water, there was maybe no God around Where are you, God? I don't see you. And that's the thing is they're looking only with their physical eyes. They're looking around and saying, we have a real need. We don't see a solution. Therefore, is God actually here? Because if God was, why would we be here? If God was with us, why would it be so hard? If God was with us, why would we be in this terrible predicament and situation? Where is God? But the thing is, so often... In a season of hardship, when we tend to look around with our physical eyes, we tend to get a skewed vision of things. You see this pattern over and over again. They they just get redeemed out of Egypt, and their backs are to the waters, with Pharaoh's army approaching, and they say this. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Or then in Exodus 16, when they seem to have no food, they say to Moses and the leaders, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Remember the good old days in Egypt when we were slaves, working for the Egyptians all day long, but there was bread and meat to the full. Like, what Egypt are they remembering? I don't remember them earlier in the story saying, actually, thanks for saving us, God. We actually prefer it here in slavery with harsh times. They weren't thinking that. And yet, their vision's been skewed. And this often happens in hardship. We get kind of tunnel vision. We're not able to see the big picture. We're not able to see God clearly in his past actions, and we get zoned into just what's in front of us, and we lose sight of things. 
and it makes us crazy. Ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. Where it feels like life is so hard and it's like, even like you're going to print something and the printer's out of ink and you're like, I knew it, life's against me. Right? And it's like, it feels so small, but if you're in that season, even the printer's ink running out, you're like, that's it, I knew God was against me. Like everything is going wrong. And we can laugh at it with hindsight, but when you're in the middle of it sometimes, right, you know it. It's like, it's hard, and your vision gets skewed, and we know it's crazy when we look back, but in the middle, we start going, where's God? If God was with me, why is it so hard? Why is there no water in my wilderness? How can God be for me if this is what's happening? And I think, too, some people... Some of us, and I would include myself in that camp, are sometimes more prone to this, where it feels like we can start to slide and fall into this pit where we can't get out. It seems like our brains get stuck, and all we can hear are voices of discouragement and anxiety and fear, and it feels like there's no light coming in, and we don't know how we're going to get out. Where is God? Is he really with us? That's the question we sometimes wrestle with. It seems like that's the problem. Where is God? But that's not how Moses defines the problem. Look at verse 2. He says, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And he repeats it in verse 7 when he explains why he names the place. He says, He called the name of that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And Masan Meribah are Hebrew words that sound like testing and quarreling. See, Moses is saying, look, the, the problem, guys, isn't that God isn't here. The problem is you're putting God to the test. The problem is you're doubting the faithful God. The problem is that you're looking around with just your physical eyes instead of looking around with eyes of faith to see who God is and what he's done before and what he's going to do again. Remember Exodus 14, when you cried out, man, it would have been better to be slaves than to die here at the edge of the sea. And God says, be still. I'll fight for you. Just be still. Or when the bitter water was made sweet, God comes to him and says, look, just trust me. Just walk with me and things will go well for you. Or last week as we talked about the manna, he only gave them enough for the day, except for Friday when he gave them enough for the next day, their day of rest. Just enough for the day, because God's saying, just trust me. Just trust. Walk by faith. That's what you're called to do. See, the thing is, these trials, these hardships, are not absences of God. They're not proof that God is not around. They're tests designed by God to strengthen and grow us. Not tests designed for us to fail, But tests like exercises made to grow and strengthen muscles that need growing, like the muscle of faith. He wants us to grow in them. In fact, Moses, when he's reflecting back on these years to the children of this generation, in Deuteronomy 8, 2 2 says this, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He wanted to humble you, to make you dependent, to see what would come out of your heart. Would faith come out? That's what he wants to grow in your hearts in this season, is faith. 
is trust, not grumbling. And of course it's going to be hard. That's the only way it works. And have you guys ever done like a team building exercise, like a, say a trust fall, where you have to like fall backwards and you're counting your teammates to catch you, right? If it wasn't hard, it wouldn't build trust. If you could do it on your own and it was easy, you wouldn't need to trust your teammates. The whole point is it's hard to force you to trust. And God is saying, I'm doing the same thing, Israel. And with us today, it works the same way. I'm going to make sometimes it hard because that's the only way you're going to grow, to trust me. Because notice in verse 1, when the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness, they did so according to the commandment of the Lord. He told them to go there. He ordered them to go, and they went, and he knew they were going to find no water there. God wasn't like, oh no, I sent you there and there's no water. This is a big problem. I don't know what to do. He sent them knowing there's going to be no water there. Knowing it would be an opportunity for them to trust him. Knowing that he would be able to show himself faithful to them. He was leading them. Will they trust him to provide? Will they, like Moses, cry out for help instead of grumble? See, when we're in these hard seasons, we can sometimes believe that God's out to get us. That's a lie of the enemy. God's not out to get us. He's out to grow us. To cause us to trust him more. To to see his faithfulness. To not look around at the circumstances, but to look to him. And that leads us to our solution. Because it is hard to trust sometimes. It's hard to move from grumbling and fear and anxiety to faith. But God provides help for us. He shows us, and he calls us to look to his faithful, gracious provision. So look at verses 5 and 6, right in the middle of our story. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He says, Moses, don't worry, I've got this. Go and take your staff. Why why does he throw in that detail? It's because remember, that staff was what Moses used for miracle after miracle after miracle. And as he takes that staff and walks before all the people of Israel, it was meant to be like this visual reminder. Remember that staff? That's the one that God used to part the Red Sea. That's the one that God used to do all these amazing miracles. It was meant to be a reminder of his past faithfulness, to trust, to provide. And even though they have not called out to him in faith, even though they've been grumbling, God provides for them water from a rock. That's a miracle. I mean, he could have said, you guys are grumbling and I'm going to teach you a lesson. He could have dropped the hammer on them, but he doesn't. He provides graciously. Now, God does discipline and correct sometimes. But he loves first to move forward in grace, in provision, inviting us to trust him. One commentator I read put this way, that God uses grumbling not to punish, but as an occasion to teach us about himself. To teach us that he's the provider, that he's the sustainer, 
that he's the gracious one. He's the shepherd whose, yes, his way sometimes is through footprints unseen through the middle of red seas, but he's a good shepherd and he leads and he provides and he cares. He promises not to leave. He does that with Moses in verse 6. He says, go and I will be before you. Moses, even in your need before the people, I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I don't leave my people. I'm with you. I'll provide. I'll show myself faithful. And as the people see this, they're meant to trust. Just as we sang about earlier, look and see our God and celebrate. Look and see and celebrate. Have your hearts moved. And that's true for us today. Because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, picks up this story. He says something really fascinating. He says, they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Saying that rock, it was a picture, friends, of how God would provide for his people. And all that gracious provision to them comes through Christ. And the same way, we get to experience God's gracious provision. We were once lost in slavery to sin, and we're ransomed out of Egypt. And yet sometimes we feel like we have need. And, and in our great need to be saved from God's just judgment, the hammer didn't fall on us. The hammer struck the rock. The staff struck the rock. And the rock is Jesus. He struck by God's justice so we could drink. That is God's gracious provision for us. And so when our physical eyes can't see God at work, we're called to look with eyes of faith and see. Paul says this again in Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? A God who gives up his son to die for rebels that don't love him is a God you can trust with everything else, even if sometimes it feels like there's no water. That's what helps us trust when we see God's faithfulness in Jesus, when we see God's character, his heart in Jesus. That's what helps us move to faith. There's a song called I Will Follow by an artist named John Guare that I really like. And the course goes like this. I believe everything that you say you are. I believe that I have seen your unchanging heart. So in the good things and in the hardest part, I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. I believe because I've seen your unchanging heart. That's why we trust. That's what we see in Jesus, God who has moved towards us. So even in the darkness, even when it feels like there is no other light, we can look back to the cross and the empty grave and say, there, there I see God for me providing, even when I can't see it right now. And this, this helps us, helps us on our mission we love talking about the Great Commission. You're making disciples. And there's this beautiful verse in there that I never noticed for years until someone pointed it out. When, when they, the disciples, saw him, that's Jesus, they worshipped him. Oh, but some doubted. Really? The risen Jesus right in front of you. And some doubted. 
And Jesus doesn't bring the hammer down on them. He says to them, go, make disciples. I'm going to send you on mission, but behold, I'm with you. I'm with you to the very end of the age. I won't leave you. I'm with you. Go. See, the difference from moving from grumbling to faith is what you have your eyes set on. Is it the circumstances around you? Is it what your limited perspective? Or is your eyes set on God, who he is, and all that he's done for us, especially in Christ? That's what produces faith in a season where there's no water. That's what's going to help us. And I think as we think about that call to respond in faith as we see God, the, the rest of the Bible really applies us in, in two ways to wrap up here. One, it offers us encouragement. It says, look, God is gracious. He provides not just once, but again and again for his people. So when God's people were in exile, in the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah speaks to them and he says this, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it or see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Do you see it? He's doing a new thing. He's done a new thing in Jesus. Do you have eyes to see He's provided our greatest source of water in Jesus. That if you drink from him, you'll never be thirsty again. Do you see it? Does that move you to rejoice and trust and praise? That's the encouragement. We have a God who does this. Lean in and trust. But there's also a warning. Paul, when he picks up this story in 1 Corinthians 10, writes this. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do you see the warning he's giving us? He's saying, look, some of them made it out of Egypt. They saw God's cloud leading them day by day. They ate manna day after day. They drank from a rock. But instead of that leading them to faith, they continued to harden their hearts. They continued to hold on to a heart of grumbling and bitterness and anger towards God. And eventually, God said, enough. You're not entering the promised land. You're out. It's a warning that we too, even if we go to church every week, even if we think we grew up in a Christian home, even if we're doing whatever we think gets us in, if we have a consistent, and that's the key word, consistent, we all struggle at times, but a consistent heart that is hardened towards God does not move towards them in faith. That road does not lead in a good place. There's a warning here. And if we think, well, that's not going to be me, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11, and says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, think you're strong enough to stand, take heed lest he fall. But no temptation 
has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See what he says? Don't be proud. Don't think you've got this. Be humble. Be dependent. And good news, God provides a way of escape. God provides grace for the humble so you can keep trusting him even when it's hard. So that even in the wilderness, on our way home to the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth, as God leads us by places with no water, we can stand. And this is huge. It's so important. As I was prepping this, I was thinking of a friend of mine who went to Germany to be a missionary, to see disciples made and plant churches. And he went there, and he didn't had no local church support, and he, he didn't really have any support from his missions agency. He was really alone in the city and newly married, and they got pregnant right away and had a really hard pregnancy, a, a tough kind of first year with their newborn. And in that process, he lost his faith. He said, I still believe there's a God, but I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't believe the gospel and he came home to America. And I met him and talked with him and wanted to just hear his story and what happened. And there was no, like, huge intellectual thing that happened that pushed him away from Christianity, which is what he was making it sound like. But he had this offhand comment at one point in the conversation that stood out to me. He said, I spent two years fundraising. I did all these things. We were working in a hard place. And when I needed him, God didn't show up. I thought, there it is. He developed a hard, bitter heart towards God and hardship instead of seeing God's faithfulness again and again in Jesus. And as I thought about that, I thought about how important community is in this journey. Actually, the author of Hebrews, the last thing we'll look at very briefly, as he reflects on this story here in Exodus 17, here's one of his encouragements to us, Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See what he's saying there? Sin is deceitful. It can creep up on you. You don't walk away in one day. But that's why we need each other. We need community. We need people who will see the warning signs of us drifting and say, watch out, you're drifting. Let me point you back to God's goodness. We need people that don't just know us on a surface level, but in city group life, we actually share real prayer requests with one another and open up and say, hey, I'm struggling here. I need help. Would you pray for me? And then we encourage those people. And we come alongside them and say, I've been there before. Maybe not your exact situation, but I know God's faithful. Let me remind you of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Let me encourage you. Let me exhort you so that you don't fall away, but you hold fast all the way to the end. That's what it means to be in Christian community, to help each other see Jesus so we move from grumbling to faith to see God's faithful provision for us in times of need so we can keep on walking in the desert, even when there's no water. Because let me tell you, when we get home to the promised land, it's going to be worth it. Let me pray.
Father, we, we, we come before you and we just need you so much. I don't know where everyone is this morning. Maybe some people are feeling right in the middle of, of a season where there's no water. Maybe some, they just came out of it. Maybe some, you're about to bring them to that season. So I ask that for every person here, whether it's for the first time and trusting you for salvation or in the daily, hourly, minute-by-minute trusting that they need, that they would look to you and your provision of Jesus for their greatest need and trust. Have eyes of faith to see your faithfulness even when maybe the evidence around them doesn't point that way. And I pray that we as a, as a church community in our city groups would be encouraging each other, spurring each other on, that maybe even this week you'd put on our hearts people that we know that are struggling to come alongside and just say, I just want to encourage you. I just want to pray for you. I just want to remind you of God's goodness so that all of us can walk the wilderness road and make it home for our good, but ultimately for your glory. Pray this in your name. Amen.